Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. This is another solo app with me and a vaunted expert guest. Today, we are talking Texas Grid and uh, what happened and how it functions in the weird energy Twitter discourse with Mark Nelson, who's got degrees in arrow and mechanical engineering and Russian language and literature from Oklahoma State and an MPhil in nuclear engineering from Cambridge University. Those are the bona fides to tee up some of the hot takes and deep cuts coming down the pike for you guys. What's up, Mark? Hey, Emmett. Glad to join you. Okay. So before we started in earnest, you you said, why are we still getting content from the Texas thing? And part of that's because now we can do more rigorous postmortems. Uh, we have the summary data. We have stuff going on in ERCOT. We have people on record saying certain things did or did not happen. In other words, there's more clarity on the situation. So maybe we should just start with the brass tack stuff for people who may not have even been pulled into this, which is what happened in Texas. Sure, Amit. It got really cold. A lot more energy was needed than what was uh, expected. That energy was needed in a season that is typically not the major demand season for electricity in Texas. And at the point that failures started showing up in a system that had been a real roller coaster system already, once the failures started to show up, they started to stack and expand one one another. What were those failures? Well, we're still figuring out exactly what happened when. But what appears to have happened is this. Natural gas is required for both heating homes, individual homes and businesses, but also burning in power plants to make electricity. Electricity is required to keep up a lot of the natural gas production system. The cold, not just messed up, uh, beyond just causing problems for the power plants in terms of frozen gauges, faulty equipment, um, uh, personnel issues, it also started freezing up production of the natural gas. So I hope I'm painting this picture of a really braided system where the gas is required to make the electricity required to make the gas required to make the electricity required to keep everybody alive. At the points that failure started showing up, they multiplied each other. As mass amounts of power were starting to be lost, some of that power was stopping power from coming on and so on until you had um, millions of people without power during um, exceptionally dangerous weather conditions. Right. So what you've just described is how a rolling blackout works, right? Is you shut off parts of the grid to keep on other parts so that you don't have a system wide. amputation is yeah. amputating limbs in war um, to save the body from gangrene. It's, it's, it's shutting off parts to save the heart. It's the body shutting off blood flow to, to save the core temperature in hypothermia, right? Yeah. Um, because if the heart stops, doesn't matter whether you still got hands, right? Mm-hmm. And in this case, um, I think we should talk about black start because it'll, it'll come up later. Black yeah. start is the, is the word used to describe booting up a grid from nothing. It's really, really hard. The grid only works if load and supply are exactly matched. And all the machines that go on the grid, all the equipment that goes on the grid is designed to sing along together at very particular um, frequencies. So the way you can picture the grid, I don't know if this is going to make it worse or better for you or your listeners, but think of it as like a giant game of tug of war where you got a million people, two million, five million, 30 million in Texas hugging, right? Little ropes. And you've got on the other end of the rope, somebody, uh, you know, a, a few thousand, you know, big thick ropes going back to the power plants and everyone's tugging, it's cooperative, but it only works, the system only works by tugging. That's the thing making the power happen. And this is the, this is the way I try to describe the AC, alternating current system, where in exchange for much better uh, efficiency characteristics over a complicated network, you have a much more technologically complicated system. DC, direct current, it's like a big brute. You want to send power from here to there, point to point, 
you can do it. You can do it pretty simply with direct current. It's, that's if you if you want to think of sending electrons, that's the way it is. Alternating current is like this little tug of war game where the electrons are hardly traveling. It's just back and forth, and in the back and forth, magnetic fields change and electrical fields go back and forth. And not, anyway, we'll stay away from the physics. It's just let's just say you get energy in the system out of the tugging and pulling, not out of the transfer of charge. Right, right. And so we were basically in danger of having that tug of war game cease. Stop. And that would be the black start. Yes, because then you would need to start again by slowly finding exactly the right amounts of pulling and pushing, right? You'd need to find the right game and you need to slowly start adding chunk, 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 chunk in a system made out of mm, tens of thousands of, of critical chunks, right? And there are also parts and systems that help regulate and control and power the system that themselves don't start until they're added on. Anyway, and the, and the current estimation by ERCOT managers is that it'd be weeks to a month or maybe more to restart in emergency conditions uh, the grid. Right, right. And ERCOT is what exactly? ERCOT, okay, I've just, I've just uh, stepped in it again. The grid is most useful when we talk about an interlinked physical tug of war game, right? Mm -hmm. In North America, there are four tug of war games, the East, the West, Texas, and Quebec. The fact that Texas and Quebec are their own tug of war games will help any discourse lovers see that there's something, something political about a grid. So why do we have these big grids? Because it was wildly more capital efficient which in the end is, is you, you, if you need a certain number of machines to provide this big, effectively public good, no matter who manages it, no matter who makes the decision, communist, capitalist, you need a certain amount of machines running to make a big system like this go. The grid helps efficiently share those big machines between large numbers of people. Uh -huh. That's why we have it, right? So in general, if you looked at a map of the density of power plants across the nation in general, and this has been changing a bit recently, there's about as many power plants as people approximately between them as population centers, right? Where the people are, they're going to be big power plants. The grid shares those big power plants power to where it's needed. Yeah. In Texas, um, a heritage system was already there so that and enough wealth and energy demand was there in Texas such that when these big grids started knitting together, it stayed independent and less people say, oh, that confirms all my political priors that Texas is, is awful and bad and right wing <laughs> or whatever. Japan itself is, is you know, on the island of Ponce, yeah, there are two We grids. need to say that their island grids exist, right? They're not inherently so bad. Japan is an island and it has two. And that's I, not because they're voting Republican in Japan. Right. It's, it's, it's just uh, the, the physical properties of the system grew up, growing up through time in politics was such that it stayed. Now, people are going to say that's a cop out because now the weakness of this grid has been revealed. But here's the, here's the thing. If Texas and its political power, its wealth, its energy production, its energy demands had been tightly coupled with neighboring grids, who's to say that it wasn't Texas policy that would win the day in those neighboring grids versus whatever those neighboring grids winning the day in policy in Texas. And in fact, those grids during much of this crisis were themselves having rolling blackouts close to Texas because they didn't have enough electricity for the same reasons. And it wasn't that Texas had its own grid. Right. So that's all to say that uh, in terms of the efficacy of Texas having its own grid, don't mess with Texas. The problems are perhaps elsewhere, and maybe we should explore some of those. So you've, we've walked through some of uh, what happens with alternating current and uh, gas and stuff like that. But I was wondering if we could sort of grade without a curve the energy systems in Texas and how they performed in this extreme weather event, right? Right. So grading without a curve, this is an interesting concept. Um, if we see an athletic young man who's seven feet tall and he's 16 or 17 years old, seven feet tall and athletic, right? Or let's say he's on a growth path to getting up there. Right. Odds are high high that he could end up in the NBA. 
right? Even if he's a journeyman backup center or something, if he isn't a unicorn, right? It's, he, he, if we see an athletic seven footer who enjoys sport, you could, you could easily see that he should, he should play in the big leagues if he, if he's motivated and, you know, has a good support network to get there, right? The odds are really good. I've seen something like 10% of people at some point, probably in a Malcolm Gladwell book or something, um, make it to the NBA if you're that tall. Now, if we're talking about gents at five, six or below, um, you know, short kings need sports too, but is it grading on a curve if they're all in basketball class together in a gym in, you know, middle school? And so what does it mean to grade on a curve in this case? Now, if we're talking math class, where just everybody takes the same math exam. Is that what you're asking for, Emmett? Well, I guess what, why I say grading on a curve is because there is what people expect certain uh, things to do, what they actually do, and then how that gets represented. So when I say grading without a curve, what I'm really saying is when we got into the whole like the wind turbines are frozen over or like natural gas is evil, you see it got frozen and nuclear didn't work that well either what people are really doing is adjusting expectations to better reflect what their priors were going into this. So if we take a look at wind and say, well, it's not reliable in winter anyway, so we didn't expect almost anything from it, but it gave us a little more than we expected. So wind did great. So wind's fine. That's not the issue, except for the fact that when wind gets sold to people as an idea when it gets talked about and when you spend several billion dollars building it out, I don't really know if a lot of people are like, Oh yeah, it's going to be totally okay when this doesn't work in a crisis and we need a lot of electricity or what have you, or people don't know necessarily that natural gas has like a just in time dispersal and there can be pipe crowding and all sorts of things that fuck up in a crisis and you need to get a lot of stuff out fast or what have you, right? So that's really what I mean when we're talking about how do we grade what happens in Texas without a curve? All right, I gotcha. Okay, then let's set up, let's set up um, the start of a grading system. What we'll do then, Emmett, is we'll look at uh, the grid operator's report that they put out before this winter season saying, how much do they expect to get in, in, a, in a high demand moment from the different energy sources? And once we set up that grading, we'll see how they did. And once we do those two things, we'll talk about whether that grading system is or isn't a curve and what we can learn from it. Sounds great. So ERPOT put out a report called a Seasonal Assessment of Resource Adequacy. And this report has the following expectations in a high demand scenario from the different power sources. Of natural gas, about 100% of natural gas is expected. As in, in this, they assume that natural gas is gonna get paid a ton of money to come online and that any competent, rational natural gas person will have their capacity come online that will be available, be made available, right? With days notice, et cetera. So in a high demand moment, they're expecting about 56 gigawatts of natural gas capacity. Um, and in extremely rough figures for your listeners, one gigawatt is a, is a good old chunky nuclear reactor in terms of power, right? Enough to run a million, a million hair dryers, right? One, one nuclear uh, unit. So 56 gigawatts of gas is a lot. That's from several hundred uh, natural gas units of various sizes, including some getting close to the size of those nuclear units we just talked about, four, five, 600 megawatts coming out of one gas, combined cycle gas turbine. Okay, then the expectations for coal would be that about 14 gigawatts would come from coal. Now coal has taken a heavy beating in Texas. That is something that almost every, every industrial competitor of coal has made a lot of noise about in the past couple of years all the coal that's coming offline in Texas while prices stay about the same for the consumer. This is arguing that even though immense losses, billions of dollars of losses were being suffered by the private owners of coal plants, it's okay because that, those costs weren't being passed to the consumer 
in terms of higher bills. And investors were still rapidly pouring even more billions into competing energy sources. And that was through the magic of the auctions of the market um, run by or caught the grid operators. But the magic of markets that was showing that you could displace entrenched interests, coal, with new, uh, with new players, and you could keep having the money come in and all of it happening with no added cost to consumers until everything changed in four days in February, but we're getting to there. Right, so coal is going offline, but still 14 gigawatts were expected by ERCOT in their looking ahead um, scenario. So that's about 100% capacity. They expected all the coal to be able to get their coal into the plant and burn it, right? About 14 gigawatts available, expected to get 14 gigawatts for gas. About 56 gigawatts, they expected to get about 56 gigawatts. Now nuclear, the nation's two lowest operating cost nuclear plants are located in Texas. If before this February freeze, you'd asked me, is the ERCOT crazy roller coaster, wild, wild west energy market good or bad? I'd say the nuclear plants haven't closed and somehow they've achieved incredibly good operation with the lowest operating costs in the nation. I like that. I don't like that this market means you could never build one again until something changes in the market. And I would have had apprehension about the quantity of wind and solar being invested. Um, but I, I, you know, I wasn't out there making my whole life being a Jeremiah about the coming freeze in Texas. Almost nobody was, almost nobody. Not nobody, but almost nobody was making everything about Texas. So Thanks, Rick Perry. Year, yeah. <laughs> hey, he tried to. <laughs> On one hand, as energy secretary, Rick Perry warned about these giant systematic events. And yeah. as governor of Texas, he, he was very proud of this correctly functioning market, good functioning nukes, good functioning gas, good functioning wind and solar investment. So, um, you know, it's uh, clearly people have different priorities as they ascend in politics, right? Yeah. Or decent. So, nuclear, back to our scale, all six, uh, about five gigawatts of nuclear was expected online in Texas during an extreme winter event. Wind. Here's where we get to the loaded, the loaded question you put to me, grading with or without a curve, right? Well, the expectation for wind is that about seven gigawatts of wind would be available. Now, Emmett, there are 30 gigawatts. So let's back up for a second. 56 gigawatts of gas installed, they expected 56 gigawatts. About 14 gigawatts of coal installed, they expected 14 gigawatts. Five gigawatts of nuclear installed, they expected five gigawatts. Wind, about 30 gigawatts installed, I mean, a little bit less, depending on which numbers. There's really big additions of wind over the last year in Texas, and getting final numbers is hard to do right at the moment. Right. We'll ballpark. The IA hasn't released it, but it's like 27, 28, 29 gigawatts. So yeah. just, you know, approximately 30. It should be 30 by now. Of these 30 gigawatts in ERCOT, they expected seven. 100% of coal, 100% of gas, 100% of nuclear, about a quarter of wind. Mm -hmm. So that's the grading system set up. And note for all your listeners, we haven't yet said how each of those energy systems did in this yeah. extreme oh, event, just quick, what the expectations. Quick question. I haven't heard anybody talk about this. What were their expectations for solar? Did they have any or no? Yeah, but they were based on a solar number that was outdated by the time this event rolled around because the solar spigot has turned on in Texas. It is big. It is big. $10 billion approximately have gone into solar in Texas over the last couple of years. And the, and the majority of that appears to have come like last year and the year before. Okay, so- And not just that, half of the added electricity expected in Texas over the next four years, approximately half is supposed to be solar. And that's solar that's in the works at various stages of permitting, has financing, under construction. Um, most of the rest expected to go in net is wind and then a tiny little bit of net gas additions, about five gigawatts going in, but four gigawatts are due to retire before then. Right, okay, okay. So a lot of solar out of the way. The rush is on with solar so much that the grid operators um, undercounted how much solar they, they thought was gonna be there. I think because they're conservative and they didn't wanna count their chickens before they hatched with solar and being there that wasn't. As it was, 
um, solar was expected to produce whatever this means, 300 megawatts out of the installed capacity of a something like it's hard to get exact numbers on this too in it right, right, like right seven or eight gigawatts of solar i think okay so not I'll a ton need to check on that yeah so not a ton well, i mean so 300 average any of your listeners who have been through a full diurnal 24-hour cycle may know that that average doesn't quite describe the characteristics of solar but it's a useful fudge for now especially if you think your extreme demand events is only going to be a few hours right right yeah yeah, not several days. And okay. especially if $10 billion of solar in Texas in the winter is still around off era in, term, or in terms of energy production at this time of year, doesn't really matter whether you say zero, you expect zero or 300, it's all, you know, it's, uh, unless of course you're at the edge of shutting down all the way to black star conditions, it doesn't really matter. Right, right, yeah. Throw another 20, 30 billion and it shouldn't, shouldn't be much of a difference. So solar, um, solar was expected at 300 average. Okay, so that's about, that's approximately, I think it's something like 5% of installed capacity. Again, solar numbers are a little hazy. We're gonna have to okay. circle back and put in links for your future transcript readers. Okay, cool. So um, those, are the, those are the hurdles. About 5% of solar was expected, about 25% of wind was expected, about 100%, 100%, 100% of nuclear, gas, coal, respectively. Okay, so now let's get to how these things actually performed. Right. So. Let's talk about it. Let's get to natural gas last. I want to start with solar. There was some solar. No one wanted, no one thought it'd be there. No one thought it wouldn't. It just, it doesn't, it was almost immaterial. 10 billion of solar doesn't matter much in the winter in Texas in terms of whether your system stays up or not, right? Um, so yeah, solar on average performed much better than operators thought. And this is operators of a grid that doesn't work on average. It works every second or your tug of war game dies, right? But it just, you know, on average, it outperformed the expectations that didn't take into account, as far as we can tell, just how much solar was added to the grid in the last couple of months. So about 700 megawatts on average, I think. Now, coal. Let's go to coal next. I know I'm jumping around with some of these things. Coal had an availability much below what was expected. 100% was expected from coal. It delivered 55% during this approximately four-day period where power was getting cut to consumers. That was not good performance from coal. Now, coal has been the absolute hated, hated orphan child for a long time. People are delighted that it's going out. You know, even people that are in the fossil fuel lobbies don't include coal. You know, it's just, it's the black sheep of the family. It's just when we were when we needed it, we didn't have it, and it it was a crisis. So coal, of which 14 gigawatts was expected under this scenario, delivered about just over half of that on average. Nuclear, five gigawatts of nuclear was expected. It was the only energy source that delivered right at that value for at least some of this disaster. Unfortunately, of the four nuclear reactors, each each a bit above one gigawatt, one of them tripped, meaning some kind of sensor wrote an, uh, read an, not, a number that wasn't good enough for the automatic control systems, and it shut the plant down. Um, was that something that we should have had an automatic override of the automatic shutdown in emergency conditions requiring operators to look into why this nuclear plant is being asked to shut down by its own equipment? I don't know. We're going to have big discussions in the nuclear industry for a long time on whether that one unit should go down. Why? Because the expectation with nuclear is nothing other than perfection. And the fact that the nuclear units were anything other than perfection, in fact, with a total online time during this event of 79% of, of the expected 100%, that is absolutely unacceptable to the nuclear industry. And we're gonna be working on that for years. There are gonna be seminars, there are gonna be special NRC inquiries, there's gonna be um, probably all the big groups that are the voluntary self-regulatory uh, programs from the nuclear industry to itself, they're going to be look, looking at this to find out why nuclear plants weren't perfect. Now we go to wind. Of the seven gigawatts expected in this scenario, wind had an uptime up of 57%, but that's on average. It only got up to that seven gigawatts a little bit near the end, and it was as low as a few hundred megawatts during its worst moments. 
So it was yeah, variable. There were moments where, well, not just variable. There were moments where it was about five to ten percent of the quarter of wind expected during this event. So mm -hmm. a quarter was expected, and it delivered in some of those times ten percent of the quarter, which means two, three percent of the total install capacity. Now, I was mentioning costs for solar. It looks like about sixty billion dollars has been spent on wind in, te in, in Texas. Amen. So of the $60 billion of equipment, we got down to moments where effectively one or two billions worth was going. Um, and so even if we are grading on a curve, depending on which curve you're talking about, wind didn't measure up. Mm -hmm. However, that brings us to gas. The natural gas system was hammered by this event. And once power started dropping, it was chaos, as far as we can tell, listening to the ERCOT people giving testimony, trying to figure out which natural gas plants could, couldn't run, which ones were on winter repairs, getting ready for a hot, hard, competitive summer competing with wind and solar, right? And the total uptime from all the natural gas generation of the state was 55% of the 100% expected. Because natural gas was 56 gigawatts in this scenario, and the total demand peaked, uh, the, the demand that would have been needed had the crash not happened, gas was almost all of the system in terms of expectations. And it didn't, and it didn't deliver, only, only just over half. So why, so why does see that happen? why people are saying it was natural, the, you know, the wind and solar guys or the energy modeling community, the, mm -hmm. you know, the liberal consensus is it was the gas's fault because 100% was expected of a system that was the majority of the state's energy during events like this is modeled by ERCON. So there you go. I've just presented it to you. Ask away. Yeah, that's the report card, right? Okay. So when I look at this, there's one part of me that says, okay, fair. Like if natural gas is going to be expected to deliver and can only do half, that's a big problem that needs to get looked at, right? Like you can't deny that. And I, I take everything you said about um, the nuclear industry and how that's going to get looked into, obviously of concern. But there's something that feels strange to me about the expectation that variable renewables like wind and solar are going to be the fundamental basis of the U.S. grid for things like the Green New Deal or certain environmentalist visions of this, like what our future is supposed to look like as a green country or whatever and what it is actually physically capable of delivering, right? Like I can hear the modelers and renewables advocates rightfully pointing out the problems with natural gas, but there seems to be a level of like cognitive dissonance or like magical thinking about what's happening for renewables, because it's not like they were even capable of handling this. And I don't know what that would even look like at scale. So let's go beyond the Texas grid and say, how was wind doing? Because a lot of people were saying, you can't just say the wind turbines got ice on them in Texas and therefore some weren't available. And we're still, and we're still trying to figure out how much of the wind turbine capacity was off because it had ice on it, how much was it off because the grid went down in areas where the wind turbines were connected, but no people. It's, we're still trying to figure out what exactly happened. Right. But so these are still some preliminary sure. numbers. There's one thing we know for sure. The wind turbines work in the winter up further north, and there was no wind during critical parts of this. Anyway, let's say Texas had built a grid all the way to Ontario. There wasn't wind. It doesn't matter whether the wind turbines have de-icing or whatever up north. There wasn't any wind. At one point, when I was staying up way too late, just, just refreshing the pages, monitoring these grids around the country, I did some quick math and realized that in four of our biggest electricity markets, three in the Eastern interconnection and one in ERCOT, there were about 90 gigawatts of installed wind during one of these deep freeze nights. And at one point of those 90 gigawatts, I totaled up the, the supply we were getting from them it was less than seven, seven gigawatts during a time of record-breaking demand. And this record-breaking demand Emmett, we're saying we need to electrify, and I, I agree with, in general, with electrification in order to get the various things people are wanting. I think that a number of electric substitutes for, for combustion technology are pretty good. 
Yeah, totally. I think that I think that there are good things that can come from a cheap, low carbon electricity grid, like France has. But in a time when we're supposed to be getting a lot more stuff on the grid, and almost all committed generation additions over the next five years are wind and solar. That we had a time with zero solar, zero, right? Like no, no solar working. Doesn't matter if you had. 500 billion of solar, no solar would have been there at 3 a.m. Central time in the United States. Yes. Or, right. or Canada or Mexico, all in the same part of the earth facing the sun or facing away, right? That the wind itself out of 90 gigawatts of America's 120 gigawatts installed capacity was running at about uh, 10% or under. Right, right. Okay. So then I just want to add some like stuff I've been ballparking in my head on top of this. And you can like adjust my thinking, right? If I'm totally off. So I'm thinking like, okay, let's say I'm like, well, I still think we need to do renewables because I think that they're the only way that we can, like I'm ideologically committed, right? Now, like technically, what am I going to need to do to say like, okay, you know, we we have to do this. How's this going to work? I'm like, well, the first thing I want to, I'm going to need to argue for is like, you know, we have problems like this happen. Well, clearly we need more storage. Okay. But like, I mean, best case scenario, what are you getting out of like a battery? Like six hours, something like that? Like maybe, right? Well, not in cold, this cold. Right, right, right. But like, okay, so let's do that. And then I'm like, okay. It depends on how you design your batteries and it depends on whether you just shot your load in the first hour or two of $9,000 a megawatt hour pricing. And now you can't afford to turn it back on to store it anymore. Right, exactly. And then I start thinking about uh, like, how many pounds of rare earth metals do you need per battery? Right. And then I think, okay, so we have, next we have transmission problems, right? Like you need more transmission lines, the more renewables you have. Okay. So let's factor in how much of that you have to build out and then how much capital you have to sink into the political cost of trying to get those in because generally people aren't huge fans of you just coming in and installing shitloads of transmission lines. Right. And then you start to think about what the actual bill that's going to be due for all of this is, and it gets higher and higher and still doesn't necessarily seem to resolve some of these fundamental problems we're talking about. I mean, it seems to me like for a lot of modelers and for a lot of renewables advocates, this was a real Rubicon in terms of like efficacy imagination for what these technologies can do. Like that's how I was looking at it. Part of the thing with transmission is that what a lot of the aesthetic drive behind renewables that made them cheap by concentrating supplies in sketchy places and and getting capital extremely good and efficient at giving capital, getting the finance industry extremely comfortable with and efficient at giving projects a green light, getting regulators incredibly comfortable with disregarding anything about nature just to get that wind and solar installed, getting grid operators to sit down, shut up, and just accept more grid. All of that, we've gotten extremely good at building wind and solar at prices that on paper look pretty cheap as long as you don't have the Texas freeze, right? As long as you don't include a four days that saw higher electricity bills and 10 years put together, yeah. right? And as long and as, as, long as you don't that. And as long as you don't figure figure in maintenance over a certain window of time, right? Yeah, but even even yeah, maybe. I mean, we'll we'll find out. I'm sure we'll find that some runs of turbines have maintenance problems. But you know, you can go send a maintenance man. It, let's just say that the wind and solar is cheap. Okay, just let's just accept this for now. The cost of that cheapness—that's a different episode. It's cheap now. Finance trusts it. Money goes into it. It gets built real fast. Mm-hmm. You know, look, in a time when it feels impossible to build anything, you can see why those who don't look at the whole picture want to go to wind and solar because at least it's getting built. Yeah. And you admit that, Emmett, at least it's getting built, right? Totally. On time, on budget, as long as you don't count like society ailing in Texas, but it itself is a self-contained accomplishment, wind and solar, yeah? But a lot of the drive that made finance comfortable with it, that made public culture comfortable with it, conquered the media elites, that conquered the environmental elites, if I don't repeat myself, um, a lot of that was an idea that you would decentralize decision-making in energy, when in fact the transmission is implying that the dudes in the control room need absolute control over the entire system of wind turbines and solar panels over an entire continent to have any prayer of coordinating resources in any kind of a difficult situation. 
a lot of the people, a lot of the people saying that wind and solar is decentralized, blah, blah, blah. You hear them now saying that ERCOT needs to centralize with the control rooms of the Eastern interconnection. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, our friend Adrian describes this as an egregious Rube Goldberg machine. But even, even an, a Rube Goldberg machine can work. Uh, well, I, I, I see where Adrian's coming from. I'm just saying that we've proven, if you described the Eastern interconnection to somebody and said, could this exist? And they are not an expert in it. They'd probably say no. And yet it goes, right? Mm -hmm. And it goes. Yeah. So although it is Rube Goldberg, the question is, are you putting in bits to your big process that fundamentally aren't fit for purpose and are going to mess up on repeated runs of your contraption? This is what we're needing to examine about wind and solar. The ingredients going into this big mix appear to be not fit for purpose in the times when it's life and death. It's okay otherwise. Right. As long as it doesn't matter, wind and solar are okay. They're, you can get them built. But you're asking about storage. Let me just say this. For everybody who wants to blame this on natural gas, what they're saying in effect is we need billions more invested in making sure natural gas is ready to just blast when we need it. That's what they're saying. Now, they might say, no, no, Mark, no. What we're saying is, yeah, maybe just for the next two or three or four or five, 10 years. 20 years, but in the longer run, we need to make sure that that natural gas only comes on when it's really important. But if you build a weather-based energy system, you find that it's important as frequent as the weather changes. Because here's the thing, when you don't have this deep freeze, if you didn't have this, this catastrophic event in Texas showing us what's going wrong, and we were five or 10 years further down the line, with another 60 billion of wind turbines, let's say we got a better deal and it's 40 gigawatts instead of 60 billion for the last 30, right? 60 billion for 40, that would have given us 70 gigawatts. ERCOT and their judgment would have said it should be, instead of seven, it should be 15. It should be 15 gigawatts they expect, which means scaling because it's, there's just one Texas, that same lack of wind was over the whole thing. And presumably if we didn't have this freeze this year and we had it in a decade and there was, no extra investment in making the things more expensive with de-icing and all that other stuff, then we would have still had a case where the grid would have stopped. Mm -hmm. And another 60 billion of wind wouldn't have fixed it. You would have needed the winterized natural gas. But of course, if you double the wind in Texas, the natural gas is, you're gonna lose most of the rest of the coal, that's gone. So now you've got to find seven gigawatts. That was the 55% performance of the 100% of the expected of coal. That was 14, right? So you got to replace all that. So now your, your wind's gone. Your advantage is gone already just from losing the coal. And if you added that much more wind without disrupting the market and saving the nuclear plants, you would have maybe lost the nuclear plants. And that half the gas fleet would have gone bankrupt five times already. And it would have only come back if there were gamblers bold enough to try their hand again. Mm. Exelon. Oh, I love that Exelon, one of the nation's biggest utilities, runs a lot of gorgeous nuclear plants. Well, they do gas in Texas. They lost something like $700 million on their gas fleet in just a few days when they'd already been burned on that gas fleet. Why? Because that's how the prices have stayed low in, in Texas, because this, this lottery, not even a lottery, this, uh, you know, this blackjack table has been set up where, where the big you know, the brass ball business people show up and they, they gamble on having a crisis big enough to pay for their system costs. And they hope that theirs is one of the last ones surviving when those big times hit. So it doesn't seem so like there's a lot extra of... extra wind wouldn't have done it and might have knocked off much of the reliable power. Right. And of course, if you listen to the environmental, I mean, not environmentalists, so they wouldn't support wind, right? But the, but the green energy professionals... Um, what they're effectively saying is that the thing that they want to kill with wind, the natural gas, and the, and, the, and the coal, is the thing that we should blame because they weren't there, which is what they're trying to achieve by building the wind. They're trying to have it both ways. And yeah. because they almost never go up against people with any understanding of the markets and the, and the grid, and few of them actually have understandings, they mainly reach out to a few professionals who, who communicate about that stuff when, when times get hard. Um, but they're trying to have it both ways, right? Keep the system that's building wind and solar and killing the, the fossil fuels and stopping the nuclear, killing the nuclear and other markets, 
So they're saying that the outcome was bad. They're blaming it on the thing that they say they're trying to kill for not being ready in, a, in a, an emergency. And then they're trying to hold on long enough to where nobody questions if this was the result. Why are we adding another solar is probably 10 billion, wind just queued up is probably 10 billion, another $20 billion at just looking ahead to the next three or four years of exactly what wasn't expected and then did not perform right. in this freeze. Right. So I guess this is going to be a good segue into the next part of the conversation, right? Because you talked about like, well, most of these people don't know and they reach out to a couple talking heads or experts when a crisis comes so that they can, you know, publish their pieces in Vox or wherever. Um, how did this work in terms of like the professional discourse around these things? Because not everybody has their eye on that stuff. I'm on the outskirts of it, you know, but I mean, this is where a lot of ideological formation happens and where a lot of confirma confirmation bias gets laundered. Um, and it plays a big role in, and I would say an outsized role, and how some of these things get decided in the public and in the sort of like smoke filled rooms <laughs> of uh, energy policy. Yeah. So the first thing that happened was um, the real warnings about this event were coming from natural gas Twitter. I mean, I got it. I, my family, I'm from Oklahoma. I went to Oklahoma state. I've got family in oil and gas. I was hearing about Wells freeze up on Saturday. The real crisis started to take hold um, Monday in the public mind, right? The public started paying attention then as power was being cut. But I was hearing about gas wells freezing up Saturday. Basic mechanism is that you get gas wells bring up water, the water freezes too, clogs things up. If you can't refreeze, you shut down and come back later, right? Okay, so natural gas Twitter was talking about energy Twitter and electricity markets Twitter, if we can say a subset, started going at it next. Once the big crisis, the scale of the crisis became obvious, you started getting a lot of the pros saying, hey, hold up, don't announce, don't say anything too soon. We've got to figure out what's going on. You know, don't, you know, people are talking about windmills and ice. That's, you can't, that's wrong. And immediately everyone was trying to say, don't say anything until we know more. It might be reasonable if it were possible for them to observe any event in the world that causes them to say, my existing career path is bad but I don't really think that's possible for most of them. So I don't trust them when they say we can't know anything yet because the bodies haven't, you know, released all the data or whatever. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and then there's the, this is a big tragedy. Don't say things too soon. You dishonor the victims, that sort of thing. And I mean, I, I get it. I think that a lack of respect for people is behind a lot of the energy policies around uh, wind and solar, just like a complete lack uh, Aggregation of responsibility is behind thinking you can time the weather enough on continent scales to get it right for a whole society at once when this heartbeat mechanism of an AC synced grid can flip off in a second, right? Mm -hmm. So, well, or nine minutes that we saw in Texas is what nine minutes, what came out of this is that that heartbeat, if it goes into an arrhythmia for nine minutes, patient dies. And yeah. in this case, we got halfway through within a few minutes of the other nuclear plants having to shut off and collapsing yeah. the grid. Yeah, we almost had to break okay. out the paddles. So the discourse that says, hold up, hold up, let's talk about this in a careful manner. Let's not get too hasty. As wind across the entirety of the center part of the, of the North American continent from the Rockies almost to the Atlantic was out of wind. And that's the, been the only big thing we've been building. And that all the reports and all the people making their careers out of talking about wind. And again, I'm not mentioning solar because it was nighttime. We're talking about nighttime, right? There's no, no one, we didn't have the solar industry jumping up and saying, hey, why is nobody either attacking us or supporting us in this? No, they were sh shutting up and staying away as they damn well should in a nighttime winter crisis. Yeah. So the wind was stopped in the entirety of the continent and people were jumping out to say, hold up. We don't know if it was like ice on the turbines. It's not right to say that yet bullshit and they knew damn well that that was a bullshit take and they said it anyway because it's their career path they, they they have many publications out that they thought weren't taking any risks saying we can decarbonize mostly with solar and wind right when decarbonize that wasn't the level of seriousness of this event people were burning their furniture 
and decarbonize. They were dumping oil into gas, anything to keep them running so people wouldn't die and they didn't quite get it and they did die. And you had all these energy experts who have made a career on something so dispassionate as, well, decarbonization, that's not the same as the grid cutting off, right? It's different levels of seriousness. And that, and that saying that you can't say anything about this grid cutting off crisis because, because we have to get all the evidence in when there's a continent-wide wind drought is utterly irresponsible. And they know that that will trip up some people. That will trip up like CNN, that'll trip up the mainstream because CNN will be like, you're right. It was mostly gas plants that were underperforming. You know, it's everything failed. Every who can even say everything failed, Emmett? How can you say that during this wind event, you yourself, Emmett Penny, did not sin a little? Surely you had impure thoughts once or twice. So really, all <laughs> of us are sinners. How can we possibly distinguish between the different types of sin? Well, it's the drill we tweet, just right? Pray for deliverance. It's the drill tweet. Right? It's the drill tweet. There's zero difference between good and bad things. You fool. You fucking idiot. So, so these, so once the once the conservatives in Texas jumped out and said it's the windmills, it's the ice on the windmills, it's the wind turbines, blah blah blah, and you know the gas industry lobbyists were out in force. Um, as they should be. It was the gas that saved the day, even if it was the lack of gas that made the crisis because everyone was depending on the gas, right? So when the wind and gas people were going off, you noted some of the most respected voices in energy getting a national platform to say it wasn't the wind turbines. It was thermal generation, gas, coal, nuclear. Even though the failure in nuclear was tiny, both as a percentage versus expectation on every possible metric, the failure level of nuclear was smaller than wind. It still got cleverly grouped in with the gas and coal and not the wind because the people who claim to be so dispassionate and hold up for your hot takes and I'm going to do another paper on this. They are spouters of ideology also because it's how they make sure they never take a risk when they say anything in public or in, in, in papers. The, most of the energy Twitter folks are expecting to eventually get an admin job, mostly in democratic administrations, or they want to get higher ranks of, prof ranks of professorship, or they really want to pull out one and they want to be a, a tenured professor at a big university while being CTO at some big energy firm or something. Right. right? Yeah. In order to hew this line, because nuclear is not there and nuclear just solves all the models, it just cures everything. You don't even need a complicated model, right? It wasn't like the EDF folks did more than like slide rules and, and you know, some, some paper uh, spreadsheets. You know, they used to have paper versions of Excel, right? Anyway, they, <laughs> just, through, just through uncomplicated methods, EDF figured out how to build enough nuclear to be clean, cheap, and reliable, right? Right. But in the, in the energy PhD world, because nuclear is not an incumbent, it's not allowed to be just an obvious big solution, and then you're done. So they have a paper trail. These energy experts have a paper trail of saying what's socially acceptable for their model of getting to be in politics later or getting to be in business later. And so that, that, constrains, that constrains their solution space to get a little bit too jargony when a big disaster like this comes and while waiting to figure out how they can force this disaster back into their socially acceptable bubble, they make little errors that are very telling like that nuclear one where the nuclear failure was much less than wind by just about any metric and they don't mention it because they need to lump it in with everything else to defuse the battle in a crisis mode as the crisis was unfolding. Right, yeah. And so I also saw interesting things happening in the nuclear space. So there's the why can't we all get along school of thought where it's like, hey, we don't want to assign any blame. We need so many tools in this toolkit to solve climate change. We can't use this as an excuse to beat up on renewables. You know, nuclear has problems too. In fact, that's why we need advanced nuclear because it's not like other girls. It doesn't have all of those Gen 3 problems you don't like. And so there's this sort of like built-in culture of defeatism, deference, and I would say slippage from reality that happens in that space, because if you're, let's say, a nuclear advocate and you would like to work with some of these people, what you can't say is me first. 
that's absolutely unacceptable to the people who have the keys to most of these doors. Yeah. And then reality comes along, breaks the doors, makes it to where people don't want to go down that hallway anyway, <laughs> drills yeah. out the locks, takes the keys and throws them <laughs> in the lake along with the bodies of the doorkeepers. And then the other, what we're going to see is a bunch of pivots. There's a lot of people who will do the right thing fourth. Some stronger ones among them or bolder or brasher ones will do the right thing third. And some brave souls do the right thing second. And we're going to see all these stages as it becomes clear that just about everything you would do to alter this Texas situation so it wouldn't happen again either goes, one, more toward fossil, two, more towards existing nuclear, three, much higher prices where Texas was held up as a counterexample for arguments that I've made that renewables are expensive. You just don't know where the prices are going. You don't know where the costs are going to show up for a while. In Texas, the costs seem to be held down until they were, and now they'll be higher, a lot higher, right? Or they won't be higher because they'll, they'll find some way to cram it off to some other person, not in the electricity price, and they'll do something to make sure the public budget supports outside the electric. Anyway, it's, it's really, really expensive, and they'll find any way to avoid that, right? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see um, how the advanced nuclear people who came out on record attacking existing nuclear during this, along with both the gas and the and the and the wind folks, like they they ought to be just gone from the space. I hope we all screenshotted tweets and saved it. Not that there should be cancel culture, but just at some point, at some point, you have to do what's right even before you know that that's where the discourse is. Right. And I don't know how we get there with most of the people whose model of promoting nuclear is, as long as we say the false thing that our enemies are saying, they'll think we're friends. But for me, the test is the crisis. If you're wrong in the crisis, it does not matter if you're right 99% of the time. Because the world moves by crisis. That's right. where things shift. And if well, you're wrong when it matters, I don't give a damn whether you're right when it doesn't and that's what we noted i i saw people who i didn't hold in particularly high regard because i thought in other mild crises or other situations they didn't stand up for the right thing and then in the moment they were there that's completely different than the people who jumped out in front to be wrong right when it most mattered yeah exactly so I, i'm not trying to be an absolutist here or a utopian I'm just saying that it's the crisis which reveals, and it revealed some really craven folks that maybe are the ones to not let in, certainly not let in the planning discourse. Yeah. It, I mean, so much this amounts to is people trying to tell me they've got a good deal on a new set of brakes for my car that work 99% of the time. Well, now it, the conditions in which they don't work are exactly the times of highest demand. Now that's a different situation when someday you're trying to pull out the garage and they just don't work quite well or something, or they give some warning. So what do you, what do you think we just say, where does this point us? Yeah, that was gonna be my point? next question. What would we physically do to solve this? Like day one, what do you change? Day 10, what do you change? Day 100, day 1000, what do you change in Texas? Is that a good? Yeah, that was, that was gonna be my next question. So let's run that down. Day one. You've got to figure out how much it's going to cost to get the natural gas generators that already exist to be ready to perform all winter. And if that means more money, you cut it out of the hide of the generation that didn't perform. And by didn't perform, I don't mean on that grading curve. I say you take it out of the hide of the generation that wasn't expected to perform. In other words, clawbacks clawbacks for subsidies given to renewables or, you know, the renewables got this, this, uh, you know, seven or $8 billion transmission system just for them, just for them to encourage investment or whatever. Well, you got to claw back wherever possible. There's got to be people who invested in renewables who don't become whole because they got to contribute to what, you know, everybody should pitch in to winterize and you can't winterize the wind. The wind wasn't there, right? So everybody pitch in, and that means the renewables need to help rebuild the system that's required in their absence. That's day one, right? Day 10, you gotta start talking about energy modeling. What does this mean, this extreme scenarios? If you go to the energy models that serve at this, the center ideological points of people's arguments about renewal, like the wind, water, solar model from Stanford, or the, you know, the CLAC 80% by, you know, or the Jesse Jenkins 2035 roadmap, if you go to those models 
and put in this weather event and it changes the answer in any large way, those models and the modelers who did them need to be gone from the discourse forever. We should treat it like an extinction event for people whose models were supposed to be pathways, but did not have an event of this size, right? We need to, we need to just say, ah, let's just pretend we've done your energy thing. Since it would have failed here, you're gone. And it will be, a, since there's always more PhDs and there's always gonna be more modelers, we shouldn't be sad about one or two professors being just completely, completely gone from this mm -hmm. entire discussion, right? We don't wanna wait until their model gets implemented as, as a national policy before we cancel them. You gotta do that beforehand. So day 10, you gotta purge the energy modeling profession, yeah? Um, and that's not saying purge the grid planning, it's just, they're two different things. In the end, the ideology in the university shows up in the grid. Texas was held as a purest, most beautiful example of the true energy market that the true economists believe in. This is also had the biggest failure, right? So you need to, you do need to, on day 10, you got to make sure that the universities, we know which of the people got PhDs with models that would have failed this and which people have gotten in the media and press with models that would have failed this. Yeah. Next, this model cannot be treated as the extreme event. We don't know what's gonna happen with weather or climate change. We do know that this shows what's possible. We should assume it will get worse. Least regrets, right? Regardless of your view on climate models, we need to assume this gets worse, right? Okay, day 100, we gotta have a plan in place by then, by day 100, to build whatever it is didn't fail that the most number of people can agree on, on being good. And in this case, I gotta say it's nuclear. Comanche Peak and South Texas Project, Let's hope they run at 100% in the next freeze, but both of them have space for expansion. We expand those babies. Day 100, we need a plan to expand what worked. That was the nuclear, okay? Day 1000, I hope to God we can figure out how to start nuclear plant uh, projects up sooner than uh, 1000 days. But um, in the end, that's one of the hardest things I try to explore, how to get nuclear going faster and, and uh, I can't, I can't promise that we'll get to 1,000 days for a start for a nuclear plant, but that's the goal that I'm shooting for. One of the things we talk about a lot on the show, in terms of like your discussion of what should happen to a certain portion of the modeling profession or whatever, and when we take a look at how the grid is set up and whether things come through or not, is that too often I feel conservative critiques are like, well, we have a culture of irresponsibility. That's a problem for running society. I'm like, yeah, I agree. But you guys seem to think it's like this mind virus that people just get by watching too many woke Netflix shows or whatever, rather than we have infrastructure problems that have like these ideological confirmation things that bake in a situation where you can have a crisis like this and there are people who are vaunted in the profession coming out and saying, this is either equally everyone's fault, which means it's no one's fault. So don't speak ill of it. That's a culture of irresponsibility when it matters most. People have to be on the hook for things when they yeah, go man, our wrong. Experts aren't, our experts aren't weight bearing a lot of times. Yeah. We have experts who a year ago were saying, don't worry about the virus. Also, masks don't work who are still in their positions. Yep. People need to be just gone from any position of responsibility. And you can argue, well, they didn't know. And also we're learning. Well, fine. Well, other people can learn. Yeah, right? exactly. There's this idea that like people are like, well, it's unfair to do that. And it's like fair isn't the question you need. Life's unfair. Plenty of things are unfair. What we're aiming for is accountability that keeps a society healthy. When you say somebody should be gone for a profession, you're not saying they should be gone from every profession and be incapable of providing no, for themselves just anything, at scale. If they were in a position that was revealed to have big consequences of getting it wrong and they didn't experience those consequences but were publicly wrong, they just can't be authorities anymore on it. We yeah. don't need back explanations. We don't need explanations going backwards of like this or that unless it comes along with putting some actual gravity for the experts to feel so they grow bones, you know? Astronauts in space lose bone mass. And if we don't right. put a little stress on the experts, they'll, they'll, uh, their strength and resolve and their thought processes get soft and flabby too. Right, exactly. So I think that we should take this moment as incredibly revealing of things, both infrastructural, ideological, and cultural, um, and use this as a test, right? Yes. going forward and yes. not just to sit test of um, 
I think we should say like, well, where were you on Texas, right? Like, what were you thinking about that? But also what happened in Texas and what can we do to make sure that it never happens again? And to judge all plans for the future based on things like Texas. If it can't accommodate something like this, we can't take it seriously as a solution to whatever we see the problems as are now. Agreed. And in that case, I'd say is that this is an outro for those of us in the nuclear profession. Maybe nothing could have been better than having one of those units at South Texas Project Trip. Hmm. Because this event could have absolutely been the foundation for a new hubris. I mean, look, we're very happy that in the much colder conditions across the rest of the continental US, no nuclear plant stripped, right? None went off. 100% performance for every plant that was in this cold weather that wasn't South Texas Project, right? Every single one was perfect except for South Texas Project. But the fact that South Texas Project let down the people of Texas when it counted means that we, are, we have ourselves some, some, I think, lessons that will help us avoid being the, what we're seeing from the wind and solar people in the future. And one of those things has to be defense of our own performance, a defense of our own success in the midst of that small failure. Yeah. But the fact that it serves as this test in the discourse, nothing will bring back the people who died, right? Nothing. However, for avoiding this in the future, the Texas test, I think it'll become the gold standard for modeling. It'll become the gold standard for policy directions. It will become the gold standard for personal integrity. And, and if all we get out of this episode, Emmett, is the Texas test, I think we've done something here in, in an hour. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with all that being said, Mark, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to talk about this. I'm sure our listeners will greatly appreciate it. I know I appreciate it. Um, and just to run through some announcements for the show, uh, we now have a Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. We will be for patrons. We'll have at least two extra episodes a month. Um, some of them will be interviews. Some of them will be other things that John and I cook up. Um, but please support us and join and we will see you guys next week. Stay safe out there. It's the caffeine, the nicotine, the milligrams of tar. It's my habitat. It needs to be cleaned. It's my car. It's the fast talk they use to abuse and feed my brain. It's the cat box. It needs to be changed. It's the pain. It's women. It's the plight for power. It's government. It's the way you're giving knowledge slow with thought control and subtle hints. It's rubbing it, itching it. It's applying cream. It's the foreigners sightseeing with high beams. It's in my dreams. It's the monsters that I conjure. It's the marijuana. It's the embarrassment. Displacement. It's where I wander. It's my genre. It's Madonna's videos. It's game shows. It's cheap liquor. Blunts. It's bumper stickers with rainbows. It's angels, demons, gods. It's the white devils. It's the monitor. The sound man. It's the motherfucking mic levels. It's gas fumes, fast food, Tommy Hill. Mommy's pill, Columbia House, music club, designer drugs and rhyming thugs It's bloods, crips, fives, six, it's stick-up kids It's Christian conservative terrorists, it's porno flicks It's the East Coast, no it's the West Coast It's public schools, it's asbestos, it's mentholated It's techno, it's sleep, life and death It's speed, coke and meth, it's hay fever, pain relievers Oral sex and smoker's breath, it stretches For as far as the eye can see It's reality, fuck it, it's everything but me on and on and on and on, the list goes on and on and on and on, the list goes on and on and on and on, the list goes on and on and on and on. It's all according to life on a whole. It's, it's, it's all according to life on a whole. It's all according to life on a whole. It's all according to life. It's in the water, it's in the air, it's in the meat. 
It's indirect, indiscreet, it's inconsistent, incomplete, it's in the streets Every city, everywhere you go, and every man It's the insanity, the fantasies, the casualties It's the healthcare system, it's welfare victims It's assault weapons, it's television religion And it's false lessons, it's cops, police, pigs with badges, guns and sticks It's harassment in a complex you carry when you're running shit It's wondering if you get to eat It's the heat, it's the winter, the weather It's herpes and it's forever It's the virus that takes the lives of weak and it's strong It's the drama that keeps on Between me and my seeds, mom It's the need to speak wrong It's that hunger for attention It's the whack who attacks songs of redemption It's prevention, it's the first solution It's loose, it's out for retribution It's mental pollution and public execution It's the nails that keep my hands and feet To these boards It's the part-time job that governs what you can't afford It's the fear, it's the fake It's clear it can make time stop And leave you stranded in the year of the snake It's the dollar, yen pound it's all denominations It's hourly wages for your professional observations It's on your face and it's in your eyes Everything you be Cause it ain't me, motherfucker Cause it ain't me <laughs> On and on and on and on The list goes on and on and on and on The list goes on and on and on and on The list goes on and on